I invite you to Matthew chapter 20. We are continuing our study through Matthew's account of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we find ourselves beginning chapter 20. We'll look at the first 16 verses, and I'm reading from the English Standard Version. If you do not have a Bible, we have Bibles in our lobby here. We have Bibles over in the overflow, and we would love for you to pick up a Bible today as our gift to you. And if you are able, would you please stand in honor of the reading of this portion of Scripture? For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. Going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing, and he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last, up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burdens of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose? With what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first last. Thank you. When being last is best, when being last is best, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us today. Father, we bow our heads before you to acknowledge that you are the great God of all. You are our heavenly Father. You are the sovereign God of the universe, creator, sustainer, provider, savior, Lord, master, king. So we bow before you to worship you, to pray to you, to seek you in this time of your people gathering together, assembled here to worship and honor your Son, to to seek you and your word, 
to ask for your help, to pray that you might, Lord, continue to work out your perfect will in our hearts, conforming us into the image of your Son. We know that this is a powerful time, Lord, a a spiritual occasion, Father, when we assemble together as your people and we open up your truth, your word, your divine revelation, and your spirit is at work, and you are working, your word is at work in, in, in our lives, and you are growing us and teaching us and equipping us and convicting us, changing us, Father, building your kingdom, building your church. And we praise you for the work that you have accomplished and the work that you will accomplish in our lives and in our church. We ask, God, that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to receive, Lord, that you would, you would crumble and you would break down any hindrance and any obstacle that we have built up that your word would prove to be that, that hammer and that sword that breaks down and that pierces through. That you would continue to mold us, Father, and we would continue to be receptive and humble and grateful and rejoicing. And we pray that if there be any here today that are apart from you, that, Father, they would... See, today you would remove the veil and they would see today the glory of Christ, the glory of the kingdom, the wretchedness of ourselves and of our sin, and they would come rejoicing into the kingdom today. Please bless, bless the time as this time of preaching your word. Guard, guard the speaker today in, in, the, in the things that he says and the things that he thinks and the way he says it so that everything would be appropriate and, and according to the text and according to the, the meaning and, and, and the honoring of your word and that, you would, that we would be receptive, Father. Bless our moms today. Encourage them today, Father. Many times they seem to come in last place, but they are so often first place in the kingdom. We love them and appreciate them, Father, so much, and we just ask, God, that you would continue to use them in powerful, often unseen ways. And we love you for that ministry that you've given them and given them especially. And we ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen. When being last is best, it's hard to find examples of last place being better than first place. Just think about it. First place means you win. Last place means that whatever you were involved in, you were the worst of all who were involved in it. Now, whether that be sports or academics or just a friendly game of putt-putt, whatever it might be, no one one wants to be, looks forward to be, strives to be in last place. 
except for Baptists in the, in the back row, right? Just, just kidding. And, and think of those dreadful pickup teams in the backyard or in PE class. You just hope you wouldn't be the last person to be picked, right? Because that meant that everyone there thought you're not really going to contribute much to this, so you're last. I remember often in PE class breathing a sigh of relief. At least I was next to the last. I wasn't last. But then I felt so sorry for the guy that was last place. Not sorry enough to be last, but I did, you know. But there are those occasions, and they're always rememberable, and they're always inspiring when the ones in the last place end up in first place. Whether that be fantasy stories like the, the Mighty Ducks movie or, or stories based on true life like the Hoosiers. It's always thrilling to, to see the underdog rise to the top, take first place. That's kind of the basic idea by Behind the words of Jesus, so the last will be first and the first last. But of course, Jesus is speaking about the spiritual realm. He's not speaking of competitive sports or anything like that. So basically, what we're looking at today in these first 16 verses of chapter 20, Jesus, in this parable, is explaining how he concluded his teaching in chapter 19. If you look with me, we, we, uh, we studied this passage last week. In verse 30, the last verse of chapter 19, Jesus concludes his teaching there by saying, but many who are first will be last and the last first. So now he goes into this parable to explain what, what he means by that. What does that statement mean? And remember, a parable is it's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. He, he means to illustrate for us in a way that we can comprehend and grasp what he's teaching us in the spiritual realm by giving us an, an earthly story and something to visualize, something that we can kind of put in mind and, and then have that light bulb experience. Oh, that's what that means in the spiritual realm because we can see it, we can connect with it in the earthly realm. That's what a parable is. And Jesus often uses parables to illustrate spiritual Truths and parables usually they, they usually convey one meaning. So we're not we're not really supposed to go through a parable and, and every little detail and every little item we're supposed to pick out and say, now what spiritual truth does this apply to? But but generally a parable is given and there's kind of one basic meaning, one basic truth that's being conveyed for us. And Jesus here is helping us to understand. What does it mean by last being first and, and first being last? So let's see what God has for us today in the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. First of all, let's talk a little bit about the purpose 
of the parable. And we've, we've mentioned it a little bit. Nine, chapter 19, verse 30 introduces, really introduces this parable. And then remember, we just read it, but in verse 16, Jesus, after he says the parable, gives the parables, he says in verse 16, so the last will be first and the first last. And so you see, he's, this parable is about explaining that spiritual truth. It's comes in between Jesus making this spiritual statement. In essence, Jesus is saying this, this parable explains what I'm talking about. But this spiritual truth is, is not just kind of a, a generalized spiritual truth, so to speak, because it's, it's meant to be understood in a particular time context, a particular time framework. Notice with me, in chapter 19 and beginning in verse 28 when Jesus is responding to Peter asking what will we have seeing that we've left everything and followed you what will we have and Jesus says in verse 28 truly I say to you in the new world when the son of man will sit on his glorious throne You who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. And then he says, but many who are first will be last and the last first. In other words, Jesus is saying that the the truth of that statement, where, where that statement is to be applied, is in the second coming of Christ. It's when Christ returns, that's when we're going to see this truth unfold before our eyes and see this actually take place. At that point, we won't need a parable to understand what's happening. We'll, we'll see it happening at the return of Christ, and we'll understand then exactly what Jesus means by, well, the last will be first, and, and the first will be last. But, but for now, we need help understanding that. But again, it's, it's put into a very particular time context when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne in the new world. But not only does it have a particular time context, it has a specific application to a specific group of people. If you look there in verse 29, after he speaks to the 12, he says, and everyone, everyone who has left houses and lands and mother and father and children and brother and sister, everyone, who has left these things for my name's sake. In other words, that specific group of people is those who have believed in Jesus and treasured Jesus to the degree that they have been willing to let go of earthly treasure. They will receive a hundredfold. We talked about this last week. Some people, even to this day, literally leave all to follow Christ. Missionaries are a prime example. But some realize they have worshipped other things. They've worshipped 
people or self or even family more than Christ. And and they leave them in the sense that they put them in the proper place. They put them in the proper perspective and they now prize Christ and they worship Christ above all. They have left those things. They have left the worship of those things, the first place of those things to put Christ first place in their lives. And everyone who does that will receive a hundredfold. It's, it's really talking about true faith, true believing faith. Look back with me in Matthew chapter 13. This is another parable that helps us understand that teaching as well. What does it mean to, to leave all? We, we see the disciples as a living example, a living illustration. We've looked at them uh, last week, dropping the nets, getting out of the boat, following Jesus, leaving everything behind. In chapter 13 and verse 44, Jesus is giving a series of these little short parables describing the kingdom of heaven. And this is a great one to help us understand what does it mean to find Christ? What, what does it mean to believe in Christ and embrace Christ and find him to be your treasure? Matthew 13 verse 44 says, The kingdom of heaven is like... So this is the kingdom of heaven. It's not part of the kingdom of heaven. A couple of people in the kingdom of heaven. This is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. Which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has. And he buys that field. In other words, he he considered the treasure in that field to be far more worth than anything else that he possessed and value enough to lose everything else just to have that treasure. Jesus said, that's the kingdom of heaven. That's what it's like to find life, to find God to be the fountain of life, to taste and see that the Lord is good. And then here in Matthew 19, he's saying that everyone who does so, everyone who truly finds that treasure and leaves everything else for Christ, every one of those, you're going to receive a hundredfold. Remember, we made this point last week. You, can't, you simply cannot give God. You, you can't lose more than you gain in Christ. It's impossible. Jesus says, you'll receive a hundredfold. Peter's wanting to know, do we have eternal life? Remember, that's the original question to the the young man posed to Christ. What must I do to have eternal life? He walks away. Peter says, well, we, we actually left everything and followed you. What do we have? He's wanting to know, do we have eternal life? And Jesus is saying, you, know, you not only have eternal life, but everyone who treasures me this way gets a hundredfold and eternal life. So you simply just cannot fathom all that God has in store for those who are in Christ Jesus, both in this life and the life to come. So the truth, the spiritual truth, the way Jesus then 
concludes that teaching that many who are first will be last and the last first, that's meant to illustrate for us what is that hundredfold? What is that? And this is what Jesus begins to teach this parable, explaining that there's simply no way that we can outgive God. So let's make some observations then of the parable. Just kind of walk through it, see what's happening. Just be reminded. Jesus says the, the kingdom of heaven is like. In other words, this parable has given us insight into the kingdom of heaven. And particularly, we've noted the kingdom of heaven when it is consummated at the return of Christ. Christ is sitting on his glorious throne. New heavens, new earth. So this is what the parable is, is teaching us. In verses 1 and 2, Jesus says, The master goes out and, and he finds workers for his vineyard. Now, now notice, he doesn't delegate this hiring of laborers to someone else, to a subordinate or anyone else. This master is personally involved. He himself goes out and he finds his workers. He chooses his workers, selects his workers to go to his vineyard. And he finds some laborers around 6 o'clock in the morning. 6 a.m., he, he finds some folks that are eager to work, wanting to work, available to work. And he agrees, he agrees with them to work a full day in his vineyard for a full day's wage. That's what, in, in this context, a denarius is about a day's pay. So you can imagine these laborers at first, they're, they're grateful to have employment for the day. That's why they were there, hoping that someone would come by and, and hire them. And, and they would be thankful that even though they're there and, and they need to work, they don't have to, they don't have to compromise. They, they don't have to be offered or, or, or to take less than what would be a suitable pay for a day's work. They're not cheated out of that day's work. They get a full day's pay for a full day's work. So off they go to the vineyard. Verses 3 and 4, the master returns about 9 a.m., about three hours later, and he finds more laborers. Notice with this group of laborers, he doesn't make a formal agreement with them. He doesn't enter into kind of a contractual agreement with them. But if they would just work the remainder of the day, he says, I'll, I'll do you right. I'll do right by you. And for them, that was enough. They need work, and, and evidently they find this master, they, they find him to be trustworthy enough, honest enough, that they will go to work, they will go to the vineyard for the rest of the day, not, not, even, not knowing exactly what they're going to be paid, but trusting that he's going to keep his word. He's a trustworthy master, and and he'll be just, he'll be fair. They'll get what they are due. And so they go to work. Verse 5, the master goes out again at 12 p.m. He goes out again at 3 p.m. to secure more workers. In other words, there must have been a tremendous harvest because the master just keeps going out and getting more and more workers. 
So the, the, those first two groups cannot possibly handle the harvest that is arriving, the work that must be done in that day. And so he continues to go and continues to hire and, and send people into his vineyard. He needs more and more and more and more. And these additional groups simply trust the, the, the managers, the, the master's honesty and, and his calling of them to come to the vineyard and work and receive. And so they go as the second group. Then we come to verses 6 and 7, and this is where the parable gets interesting and surprising. This is where we start getting into how do you understand first being last and last being first. The master goes out again at 5 p.m., the 11th hour, one hour before the end of the workday. One hour. He finds those who have been overlooked. He finds those who have been passed by. He finds those that no one else wants to hire. He finds those that are left there with nothing to do. He finds those last place people. No one has hired them. He asks, why have you been standing here all day long? No one has hired us. We've been overlooked all day long. Now, it's almost quitting time. This is the 11th hour of the day. So he's not going to get much labor out of these. He's not going to get much return. At this point, it's not about how much harvest needs to be brought in. So why hire them? Why hire the last place people, the overlooked crowd at the end of the day? And you have to say, the master must not only be an honest and trustworthy man, but he must be a compassionate man. He must be very generous. What compelled him at the last hour to go out and get more workers? At that point, it wasn't about his business, it wasn't about his revenue. It was about workers who had no employment. He must have been a very compassionate and generous master of the house. Now, that's the first surprise of this parable, but in verses 8 through 10, the surprises keep coming. There's three more surprises to come to us. And the first surprise in verse 8 is when the master reverses the order of payments. Now, this is unusual. It's not first come, first serve here, is it? Instead of beginning with those who arrived first and paying them first and so on, he begins with those who arrived last. He starts paying and giving out wages with the group that arrived with just an hour to be in the vineyard which is unusual and would have would have seemed very odd to the first group but that's not the only surprise is it 
There's a, a major surprise comes in verse 9 when that last group who, who only worked for one hour received the same amount as was agreed upon for the first group. So the wages didn't dwindle as the time in the vineyard dwindled. The, the, the payment wasn't prorated, so to speak. The, the wages were the same. In, in other words, this, this master freely gave. He freely gave so that these last place people could also go home with a full day's wage in their pocket. Again, he must really be, he's not looking at a profit margin right now, is he? So he, he must be really generous and compassionate to send these workers home with their pockets full too. Verse 10, another surprise, awaits the first place people. Seeing that these last workers were paid the wage that they were promised, they reasoned among themselves, well, if they're getting paid what we agreed to be paid and they just worked an hour and we worked all day long, then surely we're going to receive more. We worked more. We'll receive more. Sounds like pretty good reasoning. And so it is now in verses 11 and 12 that those first workers, well, they kind of actually respond as we would expect them to respond. They kind of actually respond as we would respond. <laughs> Let's be honest. They're responding by grumbling and complaining about the master of the house. Now remember, if it wasn't for the master of the house, they wouldn't have any work that day. Remember, if it wasn't for the master of the house, they would have no pay that day. Remember that they were receiving exactly what they had agreed was fair pay for a full day's work. But none of that matters now. They're not thinking about that at all right now. Because what they're thinking about right now, not about where they were 12 hours ago with no work, no pay, what they're thinking about right now is those other workers and what they have in their pocket and what I deserve to have in my pocket. That's what they're thinking now. They feel cheated. They, th this is unfair. They, they should have received more because they worked more. They have done more. Now, they seem to have a pretty good argument here, don't they? They have a, seems to be a pretty substantial case against this master of the house. My goodness, the way politics are today and the way culture is today, uh, in, in 30 minutes, this would be all over social media, right? And even the news would be picking this up. This, is, this master of the house is an awful man. Just, he, he's terrible. He's unfair. He, he mistreats his workers. Oh, my goodness. Let's boycott all of his products. 
they seem to have a pretty good argument. I mean, if, if, if we were one of them, I, I think, I, I'm pretty sure I'll speak for myself, I won't speak for you, I would feel slighted. I mean, I would be thinking the same thing. Wow, they're getting a denarius. I bet I'll get two, three, four. And then when he gives me one, I'm thinking, what? Now, in verses 13 through 15, the master replies, and he gives three gentle rebukes for the ungrateful grumbling of the first workers. And his first rebuke is to remind them they received an honest wage for an honest day's labor. The point is, they have not been wronged. They have not been wronged. They've got an, a good argument for why they've been wrong, but they've not been wronged. They worked. They have money to take home. So don't grumble for being well paid and going home with something rather than nothing. That's the first rebuke. The second rebuke is to remind those first workers that he was the master of the house. That's his vineyard. He's the one that went out and gathered workers. He's the one that gathered them. He's the one that set the wages. Everything about it is his. And his wages are not unjust or unfair. It's his to keep. It's his to give. It all belongs to him. The third, the third rebuke was to chide them a little for begrudging his generous nature. He was simply being good and generous. They seemed to have a legitimate case against this master. But in truth, the fault was in their attitude and in their perspective based on what they thought they deserved rather than based on the master's sovereign goodness and grace that they were even in the vineyard that day. That's a completely different perspective. So let's pull out some lessons from the parable for us. If we say a parable generally, generally gives us one main lesson, I would say maybe the main lesson would be don't be like these first workers in the spiritual realm. Don't be like these first workers so what's some lessons, what's some ways that we cannot be like these first workers and lose perspective and, and, and be involved in the master of the house and his work and the vineyard and be grumbling and complaining as if he's at fault, as if he's unfair, as if we're being treated unjustly? So, so to guard us from losing perspective and turning inward and turning selfish and self-centered and, and, and losing gratitude and thankfulness. 
Here's some things for us to remember, some lessons. May we never serve God. May we never serve God in terms of earning favor or deserving of wages. May we never do that. It kind of goes like this. Well, God, if I do this, then you'll do this. We pray like that often. Often we approach our walk with the Lord that way. Sadly, you often hear that in pulpits. If you do this, then God is obligated to do If you say this and believe it, then God is obligated to. This is the question that comes up too when when we suffer, doesn't it? Lord, I've, I've lived my life this way all my life. Why is this happening to me? If I do this, then God should do this. That's living the Christian life in terms of what we deserve, wages and earnings, merit. May we never serve God out of nothing less than sheer humble gratitude and thankfulness that we can even call him Father. That we even have a relationship, that we've been reconciled to God through Christ. Remember, if the master didn't hire them, they would never go to the vineyard. If God doesn't save us, we'll never go to heaven. We'll never be saved. It's never the point of how much God owes us. We already have more than we could ever deserve. If you start talking about deserve and you put your spiritual framework in what you deserve, none of us get to heaven. None of us deserve it. So let's get out of that category. Let's not be those first place workers and and start looking in perspective of the master and how gracious he is. That he even goes out and brings people to his vineyard. And of of those people that he's brought into his vineyard, he has brought us humble gratitude and thankfulness. Let's pursue that in our walk with the Lord. Now, how do we do that? Well, here's the second lesson that will help us with this. May we never forget that God is sovereign, and in his sovereignty, he is just and he is good. God is always in complete control. And in that complete control, he's always just and he is always good. He works according to his will and his will is always good, always righteous, always just. In other words, we are never slighted in God's kingdom. God never slights anyone, mistreats anyone, is unfair or unjust to anyone. It is all his, it is all his to give. 
Where we come into problem and we begin to lose perspective is when we start comparing ourselves with other workers in the vineyard. Instead of looking to God and and being thankful and grateful that we're even where we are today, we begin to look at people around us and we begin to compare where they are and what they have and how God's working in their life. And and God's doing this for them, but he hasn't done that for me. God answered that prayer for them, but he didn't answer that prayer for me. God's doing this there and God's doing that. Why hasn't God done this? One thing we start doubting, don't we? Wow, if, if, if God works that way in, in a Christian's life and, and he's not working that way in my life, I must not be a Christian. And we're standing in the middle of his vineyard. Or it begins to creep up envy in our lives, right? Jealousy, covetousness in our lives. Bitterness then towards God, anger towards God. If we compare ourselves, we will soon grumble and complain. That's where these first place workers lost track. We'll begin to complain against God as if he's not just. We'll forget that he's good and we'll never find contentment. Paul says, I've learned to be content in whatever state I am. Whether I'm abounding or whether I'm starving. I'm content. Why? Because I'm in Christ. And there's where that big verse comes that we all know well, right? Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. Where does Paul say that? In the battle for contentment. To be content with where God has me, where God has stationed me, where God has placed me, what God has given me, what he hasn't given me, where I am in life in this life for the glory of God. There's a reason. He is providential. He is sovereign. And that reason is always good. It's always just. It's always righteous. He never does you wrong. He never does wrong by us. Whatever comes our way through the hands of our sovereign God, whether it be pain or ease, trial or triumph, God is working for our good. If you are enjoying material blessing, God means to use it somehow for your good and your joy. Not your self-centeredness. If God has withdrawn earthly pleasure and blessings from you, he means it for your good in Christ, not your misery. These workers, these first place workers, remember they went home with full pay. They didn't go home with empty pockets. That would have been unjust. That would have been wrong. That didn't happen. Let's not compare what God is doing with them with what God is doing with us. When we envy and when we covet the blessings of others, it sheds light on our hearts. It's not saying something about God. It's saying something about us. That's, what, that's why the master of the house replies to these workers the way he does. If we compare, we will covet. 
If we compare, we will covet. But if we are content, we will praise. We will praise. How are you content, Pastor, when you have nothing or when you have lost everything? Well, we could ask Job. When you say you've lost everything, you're assuming that you've lost Christ. But wait a minute, what if Christ is everything and there's no way you can lose him? In fact, what if you've already let go of everything else and you only cling to Christ? Now what happens when everything else disappears? You don't fall apart. You don't get angry at God. You don't doubt your faith because you're already clinging to your greatest treasure. Contentment, thankfulness, contentment. Last lesson, may we never fault find or blame game with God. He does what he does because he's generous. God does everything that he does because he's gracious, he's good, he's compassionate. You see, the master, when the, when the master paid these last workers just as much as the first workers, the, the, wrong, the wrong response was, he's so unfair. The right response was, wow, he's really generous. They didn't deserve a full day's pay. Look what he gave them. He's a really good master. Maybe the lesson is not, let's not be first place workers. Maybe the lesson is, let's remember that we're actually all last place workers. We already have far more than we ever deserved. That's the point. You see, many who are last, many who are first will be last. And the last, first. Let's be last place people in the kingdom. May we realize that everything God has given was not given because we earned it, but rather because he's gracious. He didn't choose us to go into his vineyard for what we could do for him. Remember those last place? He chose us to go into his vineyard that we might praise him for his goodness and that he might overwhelm us with his grace. So sometimes, sometimes it's much, much better to be last. Let's pray. Father, would you work in our lives and in our hearts that we might be last place workers in your vineyard, realizing every single moment it's only by grace that we are in your vineyard and that the compensation 
It's far more than we deserve. In fact, far beyond our imagination. In fact, when those 11th hour workers went to the vineyard, they didn't imagine for a minute that they would be paid a full day's pay. That never entered their mind because the master had far more for them than they could even imagine. Jesus, you said the kingdom of heaven is like that. That's what I mean by a hundredfold. We can't even imagine all that God has for us in Christ. And every bit of it we didn't deserve. So how do we respond today? Oh, Lord, we give you thanks and praise. You're a good God. You're a gracious Father. You're always doing good. You're always generous and compassionate. We're saved by grace. So we respond with thanksgiving and hearts full of gratitude and and the desire to please you with our lives, the, the desire to get in this vineyard and work and labor and serve, not to earn, not to earn more. We can't earn more. We already have a hundredfold more than we deserve. We're not here to earn. We're here because we love you and praise you for the grace that you've bestowed upon us. Help us be those kind, make Grassy Pond Baptist Church those kind of workers. That this county, this nation, and this world, we might see it as your vineyard. And we might get to work serving the kingdom. In the power of Jesus, we pray. Amen. You have been listening to the sermon ministry of Will Owens, pastor of Grassy Pond Baptist Church, Gaffley, South Carolina. Be sure to visit willowens.com to hear more sermons, read blogs, and learn more about the missions branch, P67 Missions. Again, thank you for listening to Will Owens.